One of our volunteers uh, in the preschool department this morning, Keeley, stopped me and said that they had asked all the children, what are your favorite colors? And uh, they got to Graham, my two-year-old grandson, and said, what's your favorite color? And he said, football. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, his daddy's raising him right. They went to the... Uh, Orange and white game yesterday, and thoroughly enjoyed that. He said we spent more time at the concession stand than we did anywhere else. But um, that um, it's a sweet, it's a sweet thing. It's a, it's a, it's a, not football, my grandsons. But um, those of your guests, I'm under contract to mention them in every message. So there you go. Um, family's important. Family's a, uh, I think, a beautiful thing that God's given us. And um, I was with family um, several years ago at, at, a, at a funeral. And another family mentioned afterwards at the graveside, they said, couldn't help but notice that even today, even right now, there's something different about you. In fact, it, it's your whole family. And I said, what, what do you think that is? And they said, well, even today you seem happy. I said, well, we're, we're not happy today. That's joy. I said, we're grieving just like you are. But there's a joy that runs deep in a deep thread. I had another relative to come up and say, I want you to do my funeral when I die. And I said, well, if that's true, then we need to sit down over here. There was a little concrete bench. I said, we need to sit down right here in this cemetery, and we need to talk about that. See, as Christians, we live this contradictory life. We can be tremendously sad. We can be heartbroken. We can be going through all kinds of trouble. The exact same things that everybody else goes through. We don't get a pass. You know, we, we don't get a ticket out of problems and, and all of that just because we're followers of Jesus. But there's something different. There's, a, there's, a, there's another thing going on beneath the surface in our life that's not true of everybody. So we live this contradiction. We can be miserable and we can be joyous. Joyous. We can, we can be excited and we can be tremendously sad all at the same time. That's hard to explain, isn't it? It's hard even when you feel that, right? You, you feel that. You think, well, I know... I shouldn't feel this way, but I do, and I shouldn't feel that way, but I do, at the same time. So we're going to talk about that uh, today, because we're in the middle of a series, toward the end of a series, actually called The Grind, and we're looking at how it is that we, as followers of Jesus, get, just get through the day-to-day living. And we chose this particular time and this particular season, because we know, you know, Christmas and Easter and all the holidays are past, summer's not quite here yet. We're just grinding it out. We're just, we're just kind of getting through it. Especially if you live in Knoxville. And uh, tomorrow it may be 80 degrees. It's supposed to snow on Tuesday. Uh, it, we don't know. We don't know. We're just grinding it out. Here's the big idea of today's message. Paul suffered physically, emotionally, and relationally. Yet he endured by learning to walk in the tension of both joy and grief. That's the message today. And I hope that when we're done, over the next few minutes, 
You know how preachers always just borderline out and out lie to you when they say, now I'm just going to take a, a few minutes. Um, but when we, when we leave here to, together today, that we will be able to, to, to take what we learn, to take this lesson and to begin immediately to work it out in real practical ways in our life. So here's the application. The application point today is this. We'll find strength to remain joyful in hard times when we learn to hold both sorrow and joy at the same time. Paul is probably the best illustration, and I've used his writings for every one of these messages uh, in, in this series. And today we're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the first 10 verses. Let's read that together. Chapter 6. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. As having nothing, but possessing everything. Do you feel that tension? Do you feel that contradiction? Which is it? Paul said in the very beginning of this chapter that we are workers together with him. That's a, that's a big statement. Paul sees himself, and we see ourselves, as workers together with Jesus. Now, those of you who are regular tenders and know me, I talk a lot about grace. And I talk a lot about what the Lord Jesus does in and through us and how our life is all wrapped up in him. And how that it's Jesus in me that's the hope. It's not me working for him, and, and I emphasize that a lot. And you probably hear you know, that run through almost every time I get up to speak. So it may sound a little different to your ears when I say, we're workers for Jesus. Because then that sounds so old school. That sounds like some of those hymns written in the 50s and 60s, you know, that we're just, we're going to work for Jesus. And I say, oh, that's really not the thing. That's not what we're here for, working for him. No, it's him working in and through us. And Paul says, we're workers. We're co-workers with him. 
There's no contradiction there. We're partners. Paul saw himself as as a partner with Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, he said, Christ has given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us this ministry. And since Paul is, as he said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, one of the ambassadors for Christ, he said, "That's, that's my job. Then he said, I work with Jesus. You see, we've inherited that. We are ambassadors. In the morning, you get up, you get dressed, you get ready, you go to class, you go to work, you go to your neighborhood, you go to work out. You're there to do, obviously, whatever that thing is, but you're also an ambassador for Jesus. That's what should be the program that's running all the time uh, and not too far in the background. The word workers... Here is, you know, like I said, that's different language, and, uh, but that's important because um, there's something good. There's, there's something wired in and built into you and to me just about work itself. There is a satisfaction uh, there. So much so that God says, I want you to be workers together with me. God's best for our life is is never going to come through a state of laziness or self-indulgence or inactivity. And I'm afraid sometimes, um, I won't say, and I know I'm going to sound like an old-timer when I say, this modern brand of Christianity. You know, when I, when, I, when I say that, when I say, well, I'm just here to receive. And when I say, well, what's it going to do for me? And when I go church shopping and I go, well, you know, I don't know. I'm just, let me see what they have that just fits my demographic. And, you know, and I get that and I understand what, what that means. But that's not what it's about. It's not about me and my comfort. It's about what God wants to do in and through my life and what context he wants to do that in. God wants us to be workers together with him. It was never about us putting on a big show and, and, and just watching that. You've heard of couch potatoes? Well, behind the scenes, there's, pastors have a, a phrase called pew potatoes. <laughs> Not that any of you are that, of course. I never would, would say that other pastors do, but I don't. Um, a pew potato would be somebody who just kind of sits on the pew. We're not very busy. We don't do a lot. You know, Jesus did not redeem us on the cross so that we would come and sit in a church for a little while on a Sunday morning, week after week, month after month, year after year, and that's all. And we think, you know what, I'm living for Jesus because I go to church on Sunday. Now, you know what, that's, that's like entry level. That's like a freshman class. No offense, freshman, but that's the beginning of where our faith, you know, we worship together. This isn't the end of who we are. You know, we don't walk out and try to decide which restaurant we're going to go to having checked the box of, I've done my my Christian thing for for the week. Now, this is what launches us into uh, a week of ministry. God has designed you and he's equipped you for ministry. And if you've held back from that, if you've not engaged in that yet, you're missing it. You're missing it. You know, I tried to get one of my grandsons, well, would you taste this? And I think it was like a corn dog, which what child does not like corn dogs, you know? No, he just, he just looked at it and turned up his little nose and said, I don't like that. 
And I asked the adult question. You ever tried it? You, know, you remember your parent asking that? You ever tried it? No, I just have a sixth sense. I can look at it from here and tell. I'm not going to like that. With me, it was like Brussels sprouts or asparagus. You know, those things that you think, where that came from Middle Earth. <laughs> I'm not going to eat that. A corn dog. You know, you're going to like it. Finally, he tasted it. I like that. Now, I like corn dogs. I thought, oh, we'll add that to the list of five things that you will eat. You know? You don't know until you try it. If you've held back from ministry thinking, I don't have time, I'm too busy, I this, I that, you know, try it. Commit 90 days to ministry. You're going to get hooked. And because if, if Christ is within you, if you're in Jesus, that's built into you. And it may be dormant and you're not even aware of it. But when you engage in real practical ways with your time, your resources, your M-O-N-E-Y, you are going to find out, wow, I was made for this. I was made for this. We're workers together with him. Paul never said God works together with us. This is real specific because it isn't our work. And I'm saying, oh, God, would you help me with that? When I hooked up my little dog this morning and took out on a walk and my feet hit that pavement and I just I start praying, I didn't say, well, God, I need your help today. You know, I got this sermon. I don't know if you probably hadn't seen it or know much about it. But, uh, but I've got this. I'm going to do it for you, Jesus. You know, and I need, I need you to come alongside and help me. That is not the way this works. And if you're frustrated with your ministry, it may be a good moment for you to stop and go, wait a minute, Lord, are you doing this? Am I doing what you want me to do? And if the Lord says, no, I don't know what you're doing over there. That's not at all what I had in mind for you. I've been trying to move you here. I've been trying to get you to do this. Okay, maybe that's, that's why. It may not be that. I mean, it could be something. It could be just the devil or something else. I don't know. But you know what? Use some discernment and, and just see if you're doing your thing for God or if you're allowing him to work in us. Instead of trying to get God to help us with our work, we need to find out what's God doing. Where is God working? Where is he leading? Where is that just that natural place? And then do that with him. This picture of being ambassadors for Christ in 2 Corinthians 5.20 is especially helpful, at least to me, in understanding the nature of what this means to be Workers together with him. Workers together with him. Because an ambassador can, can only rightly be described as working with his king. Or in our culture, modern day, it'd be with you know, our government or our president. And our, you know, you're the ambassador for uh, the United States. You're the ambassador from Japan or from whatever country. The ambassador doesn't have a lot of power or any power or authority or an agenda on his own. Our ambassador can't go into another country and say, well, tell you what the U.S. is going to do. Here's what we're going to do. Uh, and you've got to check back and go, what, can, can I make this offer? What are my perimeters? What are my boundaries to work within? It's all bound up. And according to what the king says, the king delegates power and authority to the ambassador and, and reveals that agenda before they ever leave home. And then the king expects the ambassador, you need to fulfill the agenda of our country. This is what we're, this is our object, this is where we're going, the direction we're moving. We're ambassadors for Jesus. 
You're an ambassador wherever it is you find yourself this week for Christ. In verse 1, he says, not to receive the grace of God in vain. And that little phrase caught my attention. The Corinthian Christians had obviously received the grace of God. And if you read this letter and, and the, uh, it's, it's sister letter, you know, you'd see that, okay, they wouldn't be Christians if they hadn't received the grace of God. Paul's all about grace. He's real big on that. He says, yet having received it, they were potentially at fault or guilty of receiving that grace in vain. I thought, what does that mean? And Paul pleads with them. He says, don't do that. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. So what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? It means to receive the goodness and the favor of God, and yet to be your own worst enemy, to hinder that grace in your life. It means to receive the favor of God and then to fail in what God's, uh, excuse me, what Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 15.10. And here's what he said. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Paul said, it wasn't in vain in me because when that grace touched my life and changed me, it set me into motion. There was a momentum about Paul's life. You see from that day, from that very first day when his eyes were open, all the way through for the rest of his life. Paul never said, Hey, thank you for saving me at Vacation Bible School. Thank you for saving me at youth camp. Thanks for that revival. Thanks for that conference. Thanks for my friend telling me over a cup of coffee at the cafe, you know, about Jesus and for me embracing that. I'm good now. I'll see you at church on Sunday. No, Paul was, he knew. <laughs> there was so much more to it than that. And according to 1 Corinthians 15.10, uh, if Paul didn't work as hard as he did, then the grace of God would still be given to him. But in some measure, it would have been given in vain. In vain. That's kind of language that we're not used to or that we don't use that much anymore. It's really one word in the original language. And it, it actually means to empty something. It's the exact opposite word of when Jesus said, I have come to give you life and to give it to the to the full, or to give it abundantly. It's the exact opposite word of that. Instead of being full, then I'm empty. He says, you've given me this grace, but now it's empty. It's the idea of being useless, of being uh, fruitless, like an apple tree with no apples on it, ever. Last Thursday... Um, Phil Young, who's a friend of mine, he's associational director in our denomination. He's a member here at Calvary with his family. And he, he invited me to a luncheon to hear a presentation by uh, Stephen Scott, who's well-known author and businessman. Um, he has started several Fortune 500 companies. One of his best friends is Chuck Norris, um, who I have a lot in common with because I'm pretty good. Uh, but there's, you know, he... He's just a real fascinating guy. His, I think his, probably his most famous book is The Richest Guy Who Ever Lived, which is a book on Proverbs. Some of you business people probably have read that book. But the book that got my attention, he gave me a couple of copies of it, is a book called The Greatest Words Ever Spoken. Uh, after the luncheon, I got to be a part of a little small group, just a, a, a few of us who stayed and, and got to have a conversation with 
Steve, um, Mr. Scott, and he gave me a copy of this book. And what he did, he said, I set out, uh, he said, I realize not a lot of people understand the commands of Christ or even know what they are. He said, I asked pastors, and of course, immediately I started thinking, don't ask me, don't ask me. You know that feeling when you're sitting halfway through the class and the teacher says, raise your hand. You're going, oh, no, you know, and you, don't look at me, don't pick me, don't pick me. I was that guy thinking, don't ask me. He says, most pastors can't name but one or two commandments unless they go to the Ten Commandments, and they can't even do all of those. And I thought, oh, please don't ask me, and don't ask me how to find a book in the Bible and all, you know, the, right now. Okay, so he does, he, he says, I, I, I just, he said, I took two years And I just wrote down every sentence, every word, all the red letters in your Bible. He said, I just wrote down all, everything Jesus personally said about every topic that he spoke about. And he said, and I just arranged those, and I just kept working on that to see what did Jesus actually say about everything. So I got curious, how much did Jesus say, not just about the work of God or the work of Christ in God, you know, but what about us? What did he say? Are we supposed to show up for work? What does that mean in my life? I found over 30 references that talk about, from Jesus, about our work, what we should be doing Maybe there's more, but I found 30 references that you and I are supposed to go to work. All the works that we do flow out of His grace. It's not that I'm just going to get up tomorrow and think, I'm going to go to work for Jesus, you know, and just, I tried that. No, it's through grace. It's anchored in grace. It's born out of grace, and it continues to flow. And that's where the fruitfulness is. Grace, by definition, is just, it's given freely. There's nothing I have to do to earn it or, you know, to try to make it happen, to kick it into gear. There's nothing I have to do. I just receive His grace. But how I do that determines how effective that gift of grace is going to be in my life when I go to work, when I work for Him. Grace isn't given because of any past efforts on my part, because of any projects I've done. There's no work, past, present, or future um, that I've done. But it all encourages. Not, Not to say that work isn't unnecessary. It is. But God doesn't want us to receive His grace and then become passive. Then that grace is in vain. You see? I think a lot of Christians struggle... Uh, at this point is God supposed to do it or am I supposed to do it you know those phrases like on t-shirts or coffee mugs that say things like let go and let God I think well I have a hard time letting go of anything Uh, but how does that work do I just you know do I call my boss and say hey not sure God will be there in a minute (laughs) you know I'm not coming in Uh, or my neighbor's struggling and they're going through a crisis right now Uh, hands off God will take care of them I'll pray for them what is that I don't think that's what it means and and I'm not sure and that's probably a well-intended and I kind of get that and the other one that says that you know it's kind of old school but it says you know you see a bumper stick on a car it says God is my (laughs) co-pilot I think 
I don't know about you being the pilot and God being the co-pilot. Maybe you should switch, but then that would be weird. So all these pithy sayings, I don't think get right to the, the heart of it. So who's supposed to do it? Is it God doing it or is it me doing it? The answer is yes. God does it, but I do it with him. I trust God. and You're filled with his spirit and you rely on him. And then you go to work. You get to work. That's how we see our ministries and this calling that God has on our life accomplished in and through us. Alan Redpath was an evangelist and a pastor in Great Britain uh, for a long time. I believe he died in 1989. Uh, he was one of the, the preachers or writers that my mother-in-law and I both liked a lot and we would talk about or trade books. He said this, God's grace has always come into my heart and life in a very wonderful and blessed experience of now. Yesterday's grace is totally inadequate for the burden of today. And if I do not learn to lay hold of heavenly resources every day of my life for the little things as well as the big things, as a Christian, I soon become stale, barren, and fruitless in the service of the Lord. I started to try to read that in a British accent, but I couldn't make that work. But you get the idea. Verse 2 says, Now is the acceptable time. When do I need to do this? Now. What day? Today is the day of salvation. And I hope you're not putting that off. I hope you're not putting that off. Kathy and I are always starting a new food plan, and we're all, you know, I'm always thinking, you know what? I'm going to work out this week. Or next week at the latest. I ate a donut yesterday. I just wanted you to know. It didn't start yesterday. I meant for it to. Yesterday, honestly, it was going to be the day. But then there was that donut, and I thought, well, you know, I had the donut, so the rest of the day I just went with it. Today, I'm not so sure. I haven't made up my mind yet, but tomorrow, I'm no kidding, tomorrow, I'm on my game. I'm back. Unless somebody offers me another donut or a burrito or taco. You you get the idea, and some of us are that way spiritually. Well, first, I got to finish. I want to do this sin one more time, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to... Today, today, there's not going to be a better day. There's not going to be a better time. And you know what? It's not just like this open-ended. And I may get an email about this, but I don't think you get to pick and you think, you know what? I'm going to risk it. I'm going to roll the dice. I'm going to wail. I'm on my deathbed. And about one minute before I die, I'm going to pray that prayer. And boom, I'm going to go to heaven. That might happen for you. I wouldn't gamble on it. And I wouldn't miss having Jesus in my life. When I look back on the day of my salvation, the only regret I have is that it wasn't the day before or the week or the year before. Today is the day. Now is the acceptable time. God has an acceptable time for us to get to work by his grace, and that's today. This is not the time... 
Friends, it's not the time for Christians like us to be consumed with our own comfort and our own preferences and our own self-focus. Remember, it's our little story that's a part of his big story. It's not my story. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's his story. It's today. It's time to get busy. It's time to get busy for the Lord and be workers together with him. By purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness. And here's what Paul says, on the right hand and on the left. So here Paul begins to describe these resources that he took advantage of in triumphing, triumphing over all of his adversity. And if he honestly listed his trials which he did. He wasn't really bragging about it. He was just saying, here's some of the stuff that's happened to me. And he also honestly lists the fruit of the Spirit and the, and the power of God that's evident in his life. It's both of these things. So Paul had the trials, all, all of this suffering in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 4 to 5. In the first part of the section we, we looked at just a moment ago, he had those in greater measure than most of us, right? I read through that list and I think, okay, here's all the bad things that have happened to me. Here's all the things that happened to Paul. Would I trade? No, I don't think so. <laughs> he went through a lot. Here's the crazy thing. In the midst of that, at the end of that, as Paul's looking back, he's sitting you know, in prisons all the time and he's, he's healing from beatings all the time and he's being misunderstood not only by... Romans and Greeks and all the people who are out to get but Christians. <laughs> and he says, this is, this is the best time of my life. And all of these blessings of 2 Corinthians, that next section, 6 to 7, those verses, he has those in greater measure than most of us too. He has a deeper contentment and a stronger joy and a sense and awareness of God's presence than I think anybody I've ever met. This idea of on the right hand and on the left hand is a little bit of a metaphor. He's using a language there. of talking. He's talking about holding both offensive and defensive weapons. It probably has in mind, you know, he's painting this picture of both advancing and being attacked at the same time. And isn't that us? Advancing and being attacked at the same time. So he's got a shield on one arm and a sword in his, in his other hand. That's the idea. So we have this doctrine of truth and we have this power of God. We have this armor to protect us. You know, we're, we're being defensive. And we're getting attacked from all sides. Everywhere. In all situations. But we're also, we're ready to do battle ourselves. Paul says, you know, in verse 10, to be, a, to be able to be always suffering, always suffering, yet always rejoicing. What? Always suffering, always rejoicing. That's this weird statement. That's just unusual. I think, which, what, what do you mean? He's saying, I'm happy and I'm sad. I'm having a hard time. I'm having a really good time. His maturity 
gave him the strength when he faced this massive suffering, especially for the gospel, not just the ordinary day stuff, you know, oh, the washing machine broke, I'm just suffering for Jesus. Well, everybody's washing machine breaks. Everybody's car breaks. Everybody makes a bad grade. Everybody gets sick. Everybody faces the same things. Paul says, no, my suffering is uniquely linked to, it's a direct connection to my faith and my ministry. It's self-inflicted. I have brought this on myself. And I knew going in that not everybody was going to like this. He has this maturity. All believers will find that capacity. This isn't just a special thing for Paul because he's like a magic guy. or He's, you know, he's like Gandalf or something. No, he's, he's just one of us. He's just a guy. He's just a man. God says, no, you know what? That's for everybody. When I can help you endure hardship with, with this pervasive, this relentless trust in God. Then guess what? We, not just Paul, but we develop this ability to hold this mixed uh, positive and negative emotion simultaneously at the same time. The boys were over the other night. I don't think I've mentioned my grandsons yet, so I'm going to take this opportunity. They were over the other night, and they got into a little tiff about something. Brothers do that from time to time. And uh, one began to cry. So when one cries, he thinks, well, I can't be, you know, it's going to look like I'm at fault if he's crying, and I'm pretty happy, so I better cry too. So they both start crying, and, and they're crying. And so we, 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 we go out. We're out in the driveway, and I said, we're, we're going to go get snow cones. So one, in the midst of his tears, he's crying. And he, have you ever seen a child do this? Oh, they're crying. And then they go, oh, 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 snow cones, oh. And I think, okay, what are you feeling right now? What are you doing? That's the way we live our lives sometimes. We can be suffering and just grieving, but there's a part of our heart that says, I'm sorry, but I can't help. God, you just bless me. And I wouldn't trade this moment. You ever have those experiences? You think, I wouldn't go back there for a million dollars. I wouldn't do that again for anything on the world. But I wouldn't trade the intimacy and the closeness and that joy and something in me that I got through that. Just being with Jesus for anything. That's what Paul's talking about. And that's for us. Now, Paul was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned to the point where people thought he was dead. Is he dead? I think so. He was imprisoned. He was eventually killed for his faith. He was martyred. Yet he believed that he lived. It says in verse 1 and 2, I live under God's favor and in God's grace. That's how he saw it. Doesn't always look the same as what the world would give as a definition of somebody being favorable toward us. Living with joy and hope amid pain requires an ability to be able to live in, to embrace that tension. You can't just deny the pain and pretend like everything's okay, everything's fine and peachy, you know, I'm good, when you know you're not. And as Christians, we get pretty good at faking that because we don't want other people to think we're not spiritual, so we don't always admit the fact that we're doubting or we're hurting or we're scared or we're lonesome or we're feeling shame or any of those things. We just pretend. We can't add a silver lining to every cloud. Sometimes it just is what it is. 
as believers, we place our hope in a faithful God who says there's not only an end, but there's a divine purpose that I'm going to work out even in your pain. If you go through it with him and you embrace that tension of joy and grief. The last couple of years, I have read and listened a lot to uh, an author and a researcher uh, named Brene Brown. Um, she's a liberal Episcopalian, so there you go. Um, but she studies a human, human emotions and how to live wholeheartedly. And I just wanted to share with you one quote of hers. She said this, The research taught, taught me the hard truth that we can't selectively numb out. When we numb the dark, we numb the joy. When we're anxious, disconnected, vulnerable, alone, and feeling helpless, the booze and the food and work and endless hours online like comfort. But in reality, they're only casting their long shadows over our lives. In other words, you can't dull the feeling of grief without ending up dulling the feeling of joy as well. God made us. He made you emotional. And I don't know how you numb out, as she says. I don't know what you do to kind of put that barrier there. Is it just Netflix binges? Is it just skimming the internet on your phone uh, constantly? Is it just joking and laughing about it? Is it drinking it away? Is it What do you do? Well, we need to learn to go back to God's presence to pull his presence and to be aware of that. Now, for me, that's through prayer and scripture. My whole life, I have never found anything that can substitute prayer and scripture. Prayer and scripture. That just seems to pull me into his presence. And that's his opportunity. That's the Holy Spirit's language. And he says, now, I've got this to be able to pour into your life, this, these truths. And so that's where I find it. That's where you'll find it. Get back to that place of confidence and that joy that's based on truth, not just ignoring the difficulties you're facing. The world, including a lot of your Christian friends and family sometimes, I'm sorry to say, you know, described Paul's words like these. And I just pulled some, some of these out. Dishonor. Evil report, deceivers, unknown, dying, chastened, sorrowful, poor, having nothing. There may be people that look into your life and go, hmm. Here in the South, we'd say, bless her heart. That's just what we say. That's what we mean. But in his reference, Paul describes Paul's life with words like this. Honor, good report. True, well-known, behold we live, not killed, always rejoicing, making many rich, possessing all things. You know, and you want to look over to Paul's life and go, Paul, you're sitting in prison. What do you, do you not need? Because, yeah, you just, you don't get it. You don't need to understand what it is to be in Jesus, to be in him. So which description is true. The people around you, the world's, or God's? Was those who would attack Paul right? 
or was what Paul saw in his life, in his relationship with Jesus, right? I think the answer, the description that is true, the worlds are God's view, is in 2 Corinthians 4.18. Let me read verse 16. I just, just one little phrase from it in the beginning. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outward self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed but day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Then verse 18. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. God's estimation is correct. Would you stand with me for a moment? Because I want to ask you this question in closing. I don't know if you have a ministry. I don't know how open you are to allowing the grief to be real in your life or the problems and the pain. Say, yeah, I'm not having a good day. But you know what? I'm not having it alone. God's with me. And I feel that and I sense that. And then to push past that and to look at your particular situation. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe about your health, your finances, your job, relationships. I don't know what it is. But if you can keep your eyes wide open and, and look at that honestly. You may have stepped in this room and had your heart broken. And it may have taken all your energy just to get up and come here today. God bless you. Because He's with you. Which way will you choose to see your life? You know, another beautiful thing about this is that you don't have to do it alone. You don't have to do this by yourself. I mean, the Lord is with you. Yes, He is. Jesus is walking every step with you. He's right there all the time. He sees you. He knows. And He cares. But He also has surrounded you with brothers and sisters who love you and care about you and support you too. But we can't we don't if we don't know. If you're just going to fake it and not let us in. So if you need to today, if you want to come and just to be on these steps, I've got a feeling that you won't be here very long. If you just want somebody to pray with you, there'll be others to come and just to surround you, and to pray with you, and to walk with you, whatever it is you've got in front of you tomorrow and the next day. That's what we do. That's what church is really about. Not just Sunday morning. But it's about that network, that web, that support, that net of prayer and love that we have for each other. So let us, let us do this with you. Father, thank you for today. Lord, we're going to worship you. We're going to keep our eyes on you. And it doesn't mean that we're going to pretend we're not hurting, that we're not scared. Father, it means we also won't 
let that push us to the place where we lose heart we abandon our confidence we embrace both the joy and the grief the tension between celebration and mourning and our eyes are on you Jesus